are now tuned in to this week's episode of our podcast. Today, we are going to interview some of the greatest and most influential minds in our field. By sharing our collective expertise, we will show you how to harness, control, and use your own skill set to achieve ultimate success and live the life you want. And now, please welcome your host. on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Today's episode is brought to you by Patreon. If you're interested in supporting the show, go to patreon.com slash Joshua and become a $2 backer today and get early access to the new episodes. I'll be leaving a link in the description down below, but for now, on to today's episode. You're listening to the Augment Experience Podcast. I'm your host, as usual, Joshua Vellis. I'm a student, musician, and a gamer at heart. Join me as I sit down every week to talk about all the latest news in the technology, business, and video game world. I hope you guys enjoy. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the show. My name is Joshua Ellis. I'm your host as usual, and obviously, welcome back to the show. Today's episode 143 of the show, and before we get started, we're going to be a house cleaning quick because, well, we always like to do it around here, and you guys know it's just a normal shtick. We like to do it around here, so we're going to do it, but I do want to say thank you guys for coming back and listening. It really does mean a lot to me. You guys constantly keep coming back, and you keep downloading these episodes. You keep sharing these episodes. You constantly keep letting me know how you feel about them, whether you like them, dislike them, you like my opinion, you don't like my opinion. You know, it's all the same to me because you guys are letting me know how you guys feel. And to me, I feel like that's the most helpful thing is you guys letting me know how you feel about the topics or, you know, how you feel about how I portray this. A lot of the conversations, if I left out details, if I gave enough details, you know, it's a lot of things to be honest, but I do greatly appreciate your guys' feedback and everything. I do really appreciate it. I appreciate the likes. I appreciate the dislikes. And I I really do mean it. I really do mean it that I appreciate it because it does help a lot. I do want to say thank you guys for all the love and support. Thank you because we're actually close to 2,050 total downloads. And I do want to say thank you for that because we hit the 2,000 goal before the end of the year. So again, thank you for that. I really appreciate that. And it's really crazy. You know, to me, it's crazy, but I thank you guys for that. Hopefully we can hit maybe 2100 before the end of the year. Let's see. But we just have to wait and see. And I do want to say thank you to the Patreon backers as well, because you guys constantly keep supporting me. So thank you to the Patreon backers. Obviously, we're still in the process of getting everything finalized for the Patreon backers for specifically reworking the tiers is what we're working on is basically changing the $2 tier and adding a $5 tier. And also changing the benefits and adding new ones as a result. And I do want to say thank you guys for, well, specifically to the one Patreon backer we've had this whole time. So thank you to your continued support. I really appreciate it. And hopefully we can get more. That's hopefully we can pull this off, hopefully. (laughs) But I do also want to say thank you to everyone that's watching on YouTube because you guys are the most active when it comes to commenting on the videos. And also 
you know, for people that follow me on my social medias, because, well, you guys hit me up on my social medias. If you have topics that I want to talk about or that you guys want me to talk about. And do you guys also let me know how you guys feel about the episode? So I greatly appreciate it. So you can hit my social medias down below. But aside from that, I believe that's pretty much it. So now we can go straight into the episode. And based on the poll that I put on my social media page, again, you can go to the links down below, follow me on Snapchat or well, mostly Instagram and Twitter. But you know, if you want the Snapchat, you can just hit me up on Instagram. We can go from there. But based on the poll, we're going to be doing a real talk today. And this one has been on my mind for a while now, if I'm being honest with you guys, that it has been on my mind. And for me, it's been interesting to be, to say the least, if I'm being honest with you, that we're going to be doing a real talk about dealing with burnout. And I know given this wacky year known as 2020, this is something that we've all dealt with, whether you want to believe it or not. We've all dealt with this throughout this year. And it's a very interesting topic because if you guys don't know what burnout is, which I would be surprised if you didn't, but if you want to know what it is, the layman's term of explaining is when you're just completely tired of everything, that you feel like you're at your end, that you just don't feel like you have anything left in the tank. And given this crazy year, I wouldn't be surprised. And I personally want to make this real talk special that I just don't want this to be a one and done, but rather I'd rather this be a two parter. So I'm saying this now, this is part one. And this one is primarily going to be focusing on how I've dealt with burnout throughout this year, because I'm just being honest, I've dealt with it. I've had to go through with this throughout this year, because there's been many instances where I just felt that I just couldn't take anymore. And I do want to open up and share that with y'all because I feel that the way you can build genuine bonds with people and relationships is when you are willing to be open and be vulnerable and share your experiences. And for me, I'm a very open book. I believe that to have a healthy relationship with people, to be in a healthy team, to do anything in a healthy and efficient manner, there needs to be a level of trust. There needs to be a a sense of vulnerability that you have to be willing to open up. And for me, that's what I like doing with the real talks is I like keeping it real with you guys. That's why we do them is because it's me being open, being honest and not pulling my punches. And I feel like based on past experiences with past real talks, we have helped a lot of people. We've encouraged a lot of people with what we talked about here. And I only hope for the same for this one that we address, you know, dealing with burnout, how I've dealt with it. And then the next one will be, we'll have other people talk about their, how they've dealt with it throughout this year, because everyone's been handling things differently. But for me, I've had many reasons to feel burned out, to be honest. Like, think about it. I've had to juggle this new job that basically I'm always busy. I've had to deal with school going online, which I don't like learning online. I think it's a very inefficient way of learning. I've had to deal with, you know, still running the show and everything. I've had to deal with family stress, with, you know, things like my grandfather passing away and things like that. And there's been so much going on in my mind 
And just being honest, I've also been dealing with a lot of just feeling lonely that I have been feeling extremely lonely that I've kind of just felt like a bother to people recently. And to me, these are all results of being a little bit burnt out because this year has been very exhausting. Like, heck, if I'm being honest with you guys, we're in the middle of final season here in my school. And like, I just really didn't give a crap while doing my tests. I really didn't. Like, you can ask my friends. I really didn't care. And to me, that's just a clear example that, yeah, that something was wrong. And I do feel like as we go into the winter break for here at campus, I do feel like I'm going to be a little bit more relaxed. I do feel like I'm going to have a little bit more fun because I won't be so stressed. I won't be so anxious. I won't feel so lonely because I'll be surrounded by my family and things like that. But to me, it's been a very interesting situation because like I said, what works for me may not work for you. And that's just cold, hard facts, whether you want to admit it or not, that something that works for me may not work for you because everyone's experience is different. Everybody's perspective on things is different. And that's okay because we're all unique. We were all created in a unique manner. But I will say that for me, it's been rough. Like, as I mentioned, like I've been feeling extremely lonely. I've not really feel like doing anything. And it's been such a hard thing to deal with because you just don't want to do anything. Like you just complain, like prime example, let me, I'm just putting myself on blast that I've complained about not having anything to do yet. I don't do anything, you know, like, and I feel like some people fall, fall in that same boat where like you complain about not, not having anything to do yet you don't want to do anything. And I've fallen susceptible to that trap. I'm just being honest. I'm throwing myself under the bus here. And that's just the reality of it. That I haven't been as productive as I can be. That's just me being honest. And I do associate that with being burnt out because I just felt like I've hit my limit throughout this entire year because of the stress with COVID, with the stress with all the family stuff, with the stress with school, with work, with the show. Like there's so many things that I could dial up that just you, that basically left me exhausted a little bit. And even now, like just being honest while doing this, this is kind of a side effect of burnout. And I felt like it was healthy that I talk about it because I'm not going to tell you something or encourage you in a way about something if I haven't been dealing with it myself, because then I'd be a hypocrite. It makes it easier for me to talk about something when you've had experience about it. Because I feel like that's much easier because then you can share your experience and then somebody else shares their experience and you can bond, you can relate, you can make an effort to empathize with that person because you can understand a similar feeling of what they're going through. You may not understand it exactly, but that I always tell people there's always these nice things called universal constants that no matter what, you may not be able to understand someone hundred percent, but that doesn't mean that you can't make an effort or at least relate to it in some way. And with me, it's been rough. 
because I haven't been doing a lot of things that I should be doing. That's just me being honest with you guys that, and if it wasn't for the show, if I'm being honest, like even just the show, if it hasn't been for my amazing friends and family, like, I don't know where I would be because the show helps keep me focused. It helps keep me motivated. It's like, Hey, we get to record the show today. Like I get excited. I get all jittery. I get to have fun because you guys get to see my reactions. Like you visually and you verbally can hear it. Like if you're listening to the show on Spotify or Apple podcast, where we like to listen to these things, you can hear the change in my voice. You can hear the jitters. You can hear the excitement. And if you're watching, you can see my face and there's no mistaking it that you can see, you can hear, you can feel like you get that sense because your senses are being engaged. You can hear it. You can see it. You can feel it. And that's just the reality of it that I just kind of come alive a little bit when I do this stuff that it kind of brings me out of that gutter because I get to have fun. I get to, I wouldn't say throw away responsibilities because being honest, doing the show is also a responsibility, but it just, it's very uplifting. It's a very enjoying or very joyful experience for me that it's something that I love doing. And you can tell because I wouldn't keep doing this if I didn't love doing this. I'm being honest. Like that would kind of sound stupid to do something that you don't like doing. Like at that point, I kind of argue you're a bit dumb there, but, but I enjoy doing this and it's fun to me, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't also come with stress. Like trying to get the episodes on time, edit the episodes, you know, the audio and the video version, like uploading them to YouTube, dealing with camera stuff. And to me, that's just been not, I wouldn't say part of the problem, but I feel like that's just helped alleviate a lot of the stress that's been on my shoulders, really that school, like, yeah, like I've had many reasons to feel anxious, to feel like, am I really doing the right thing? Like I've had to ask myself that question this year. I did when I switched majors where I was just so burnt out with how engineering was being done here that I was just like, look, I don't agree with this on a, on a moral And as a person, I do not agree with how engineering is being presented and how it almost makes it seem like you always have to, what's it called? You have to approach it in this very specific mindset that I just don't agree with because that's just how a lot of people, they just make it seem all doom and gloom. And it almost makes it seem like you have to not have a heart or you have to be an emotionless robot, which I find it weird because I always remember when my robotics mentors told me, these are people that will promote engineering to the highest mountain. And this is what they said. We're not trying to build robots. We're trying to build leaders. We're trying to build people. We're trying to build genuine relationships with people by using engineering or robotics as a means to get there, that it's a mediator, that it's using it as a platform. And I've, I've told people this all the time. I did engineering because to me, engineering was a platform to help people. And I felt that from personal experience, I got burnt out because I just felt it wasn't 
about that anymore. At that point, I was getting stressed about like trying to meet the grade that I needed for the test or like study as hard as I can or do the homeworks. And it just got to the point where it didn't feel like I was doing it to help people anymore, that I lost focus and that it didn't really seem that way. And then another opportunity presents itself and it focuses on that. It focuses on building relationships with people. It focuses on being intentional with people. And that was marketing. So that's why I ended up switching to marketing. And to me, you see these examples of burnout, the burnout with engineering, the burnout with work, the burnout with school. You see all these personal examples in my life. And now you're wondering, Josh, how do you deal with it? You, you have a busy schedule, whether you want to like, people always think that I just have so much free time on my hands and well, I do say, yes, there's a lot of days where I do have a lot of free time. That doesn't mean that there's not a lot of thinking going on in my head that causes me to kind of be immobilized a little bit, you know, be a little bit stuck where I'm just stuck in my head and just thinking and thinking and thinking. And for me, that's always been the hard part is when I get stuck in a thinking loop. And I would always say that that kind of really is what causes a lot of the burnout is that I just overthink a little bit. You know, that's just the reality. If I'm being honest with you, that it's been rough. Like, especially when you add in like the burnout, like just making me feel lonely. And it's not easy, you know, like, cause I know a lot of people have felt that way, feeling lonely, feeling like nobody's there. Like nobody wants to spend time with you. That's hard to deal with that. If I'm being honest, but I always have to remind myself like, Hey, you're not alone. You never are. And I remember vividly a piece of advice that my mentor gave me during Christmas time when I was dealing with that mindset where I just felt I was burnt out completely after like a bunch of relationship stuff that I remember what he told me. He told me, Hey bud, like I made a side comment. Like I'll try not to feel lonely. And he's like, okay, let me tell you this. The day that you can say you're alone is the day when all of us, all of us that care about you, your mom, your dad, us, everyone that cares about you is no longer there. That's when you can say you're alone. And it's ironic because I finished the rest of it because I knew he would have said that, but he was running out of time that I always finished it where even after all of them are gone, I will never be alone because I know God is always with me. That was always something my other mentor always told me was, Hey bud, you have to learn to be content with your life when it's just you and God. If you can't do that, you can never be happy when there's someone else there. And that struck a chord with me because it's like, am I content with my life? Now you're probably thinking, Josh, how does that have anything to do with burnout? And with I'm being honest is I think when I put too much focus and too much emphasis on the wrong things, it burns me out. It tires me out because I'm trying to find satisfaction. I'm trying to find joy. I'm trying to find fulfillment 
in things that will not do it. Whether you want to believe it or not, human nature is never satisfied. That's just human nature. It's like we always want more and more and more. And there's nothing that can give you that whether you believe it or not. No amount of money will make you happy. No no amount of having nice things will make you happy. Having a nice, the nicest car will make you happy. The nicest computer, the nicest headphones, phone, whatever you, you can fill in the blank. Having this will never satisfy you. And it will just leave you burned out in the end because you'll get tired. You'll, it'll, you'll try to make it fulfill your needs, but you end up getting burned down in the end. No, no perfect grade. Nothing will satisfy human nature. But only one thing can. And this is where I talk a little bit about my beliefs where I, as a Christian, believe that, yes, the ultimate satisfaction that can ever be had is in Christ because he is perfect. He makes no mistakes. He will never leave. He will never abandon you. He'll never hurt you. He'll always take care of you. And the funny thing is that I know that. And yet I still struggle to believe that sometimes. And that's okay because that's normal. Like we're humans. We're going to struggle with things, whether you want to believe it or not. No one's perfect. But I think that's always the most encouraging thing is that you're never alone when you go through something. You never are. Yes, you have to do some things on your own. But that doesn't mean you're alone throughout the process. Or let me word it like this. There's a difference between being alone and doing things by yourself. You have to go to the bathroom by yourself. I, I'm assuming if you are a, you know, a pretty at least grown up person that's not a toddler, then yes, you can go to the bathroom by yourself. That doesn't mean that, say you go to a restaurant, your parents don't go to the bathroom with you. You go to the bathroom by yourself. Like you just go in, use the bathroom and then leave. Your, your parents don't go in with you. That doesn't mean you're alone. That just means you have to do it by yourself. And that was something that always had to be hard, especially when dealing with burnout, is that when I get burnt out, I do feel lonely. I do feel tired. I do feel exhausted, like I'm at the end of myself, and I just can't keep going forward. And that's always been the hardest thing is combating that lie with the truth which is the truth is you're not alone bud you're not and that's just something that i've had to wrestle with personally and for me i can't imagine how somebody else will feel going through burnout because a lot of people handle it differently some people just get completely burnt out and they just don't they just give up some people don't some people do other things and with me, even though, yes, it's been a bit difficult for me because, like I said, feeling lonely, like physically, emotionally, but I know that I'm never alone. I know that no matter the circumstances, whether I have everything or whether I have nothing, I will learn to be content because that has always been my way of dealing with burnouts is learning to be content with your life and finding satisfaction where it's supposed to be found and not trying to find it in other things because other things will never fulfill me. And then I just end up being where I'm at. That's why I've had to deal with it multiple times because 
I still haven't learned the lesson. But that's part of human nature. You pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and you keep moving. You don't stop moving. That was always a lesson that my grandfather taught me. And it was ironic because I knew that piece of advice before I found out my grandfather always said it. How interesting, you know? But I do want to make this clear that this is just me just sharing my experience a little bit, you know, that this is me sharing my experience of dealing with burnout, what it feels like to just be tired and just, you know, it just feels like you're at the end. You know, you're just at the end of yourself that you got nothing left to give. And the reality is, yeah, you do. You have a race that still needs to get. You still have a race to run. I'm speaking to you in the audience. You still have a race to run. So keep running. Don't stop moving. Whether things get difficult or things are a little bit easy, don't get comfortable. Get at The only way you will truly ever grow is when you step out of the comfort chair. When you get up and you walk. I would say run, really, because it's a race. Everyone has a race to run. All of our races are different, but everyone has a race to run. If you are still breathing, if you are still alive and well, then you have a race to run, buddy. Whether you want to believe it or not, you got a race to run. And that's just the reality of it. You got a race to run. And yes, that doesn't mean burnout won't come and go. I get it that this year has been difficult, especially imagine how first responders and medical workers feel. Imagine how essential workers feel. Dude. Or a gal. <laughs> this has been a hard year on everyone. It's not surprising that you're burnt out. But you're not alone when you're going through it. There's people that can relate to you. You just have to be willing to reach out a little bit and just open up. And I always feel like that's the easiest way to combat things like this, like things that come like ways of combating depression, anxiety, you know, burnout. Talk to somebody, open up to somebody, say, hey, man, or gal, this is how I've been feeling. And I want to share with you how I've been feeling because I just need someone to talk to. And I always feel like that is one of the best ways to deal with things like that is when you're willing to go out of your way, stepping out of your comfort zone to talk to somebody, share, open up, because you'd be surprised on what you end up finding out, on how similar people's experiences are to yours, that people are going through things that unless you open up, you may never know. And that's just the reality because I always feel like as human nature, if someone opens up to you, you end up feeling a bit inclined to open up yourself. And I just feel like that's just a beautiful thing, you know, like just being open, being honest with one another, being vulnerable to one another and having those kind of healthy conversations that lead to healthy friendships, healthy relationships that lead to healthy marriages, that lead to healthy growth as individuals. And then it leads to a healthy group as people. And that's what we like to promote around here. We like to promote healthy growth as individuals first, because that's what matters is you as an individual first must be in a healthy place in every aspect of your life before you can get out of your circle and help someone else. That's just the reality. Of it. You can't help someone if you haven't helped yourself, but 
that's all I got for you guys for this one. Like I said, I wanted to make this a two-parter. This part is primarily focused on my experience of dealing with burnout and how I felt and, you know, what I've been dealing with. But I just want to encourage you guys with this, that you're not alone. You're not going through this alone. Yes, this is a lesson or I would say an experience that you have to go through by yourself. But you are not alone in the matter. That doesn't mean there's nobody there that doesn't understand how you feel. I encourage you to open up to people, open up to your community group. And if you don't have a community group, make a community, make a community group, find people that you trust and that you want to open up to and hold each other accountable. Like talk to each other, see how everyone's day is going, see how they're dealing with certain things in their life, open up to them, be open, be vulnerable, be honest and thoughtful and intentional with your interactions. Because I guarantee you, you're going to see some wonderful things when you do that. But that's all I got for you guys today. Thank you guys for listening to today's episode. I really, really do appreciate it. We're going to take our time with the second part of the real talk, talking about burnout because we got a lot of people to talk to. But I do hope that you guys come back and listen to Friday's episode. We're going to be talking about Nintendo and how they've been handling the Smash Brothers community because my God, it is a pretty bad situation. But again, I love you guys. Thank you guys for everything. Thank you guys for constantly listening, downloading, sharing, doing whatever you want with these episodes. I really do appreciate it. If you haven't already, if you're watching on YouTube, click the like, dislike button, subscribe, bell notification. You guys already know the jazz, but I really do appreciate it. Thank you to all the Spotify and you and Apple podcasts, wherever you like to listen to your podcast. I greatly appreciate you guys. You guys are awesome. And I will see you guys Friday. Bye guys. I love you. Hey there. Thank you for listening to today's episode. I really appreciate it. Thank you guys so much for taking time out of your day and listening to today's episode. If you're interested in supporting the show, whether it be financially, clicking the follow button, or just sharing the episode, it all works for me, guys. Thank you guys so much for your time, and I love you guys to death. Your choice of investor is extremely important. Should you decide, you know, money is money. Once the cash hits the bank account, it really doesn't matter. Um, That's just cash. It's a commodity. But when you are choosing your partner in terms of a financial sponsor for your business, whether that's an individual, whether that's a private equity or venture capital firm, if their interests are not aligned with yours, then you're going to have a hard time building your business. This is Office Hours, and I'm Spencer Raskoff. I'm a tech entrepreneur who co-founded Zillow and ran it for a decade. I also co-founded Hotwire, which we sold to Expedia. I'm now the co-founder and chair of .LA, the preeminent news service covering the tech and startup industry in my hometown of Los Angeles. My newest startup is called Picasso, a company that democratizes access to second home ownership. On this podcast, you'll hear from founders, CEOs, and thought leaders from around the world. Today, we have Greg Renfrew, serial entrepreneur, founder of the clean beauty and makeup company Beauty Counter, and also on the board of directors of Supernova, the special purpose acquisition company, or SPAC. Hey, Greg, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So let's go back to the early days and share with our listeners what one of your first entrepreneurial experiences was like. Well, I think from the earliest days, I was always focusing on... I always want to have a side hustle. I always wanted to make a little bit of my own money. And it probably started with, 
you know, clearing plates at dinner parties that my parents were having and uh, babysitting. But I think the first true entrepreneurial endeavor was when I was in college, I wanted to go on something called Semester at Sea. And it was an around the world program. I was really excited about going and my mother could only afford to pay the existing tuition at my my university couldn't pay the, the differential. And so I went to Nantucket that summer and I started a house cleaning company with a couple of friends called KGM, Kelly, Greg, and Merrill. And uh, we hiring a bunch of people and you know really focusing on all the real estate companies that were turning over rentals every single Saturday. It wasn't the sexiest job necessarily, but it paid extremely well. And that was probably my first real business that was successful. And at the end of the summer, you you closed that business, or or what happened? I did it for a couple of summers. We uh, obviously we went back to school in the fall, so we weren't doing it on the off season. But we did it for several summers, and by the second or third summer, we had I got a lot smarter, and I was then paying a bunch of people to work for me under the table. Uh, <laughs> well done. Someday be audited by the IRS, but um, no, it was an ongoing concern for two or three summers, and we had a whole bunch of college kids working with us. It was actually a really good gig because. Kind of like today's gig economy, you have uh, the ability to work flexibly and, you know, we would create our own hours. We'd work really hard in the morning, go to the beach in the middle of the day, go back in the afternoons and clean and each summer with a bunch of money. So, so the, the grit that something like that builds at a young age is, is probably very formative. Um, I've also read you, you talk about the impact that your parents uh, kind of tough love had regarding whether to sort of stake you out of college or give you, um, you know, send you on your way and have you chart your own path. Describe what impact that had. You know, from the earliest age, my parents instilled in me the gift of confidence. They always were incredible saying, you can be whatever you want to be, Greg. You just have to work incredibly hard. And when I graduated from the University of Vermont, my mother, a brief my initials on it and a check for five thousand dollars, which was which was a decent amount of money at the time. And she sort of said, "Look, your father and I are done. We've given you a debt-free education. We think you're highly capable, and we want to see you succeed on your own." And I was really at the time because I had a lot of friends having gone to the University of Vermont. I had a lot of friends that were moving out to Colorado and they wanted to be ski bums. And my mom said, "Absolutely not. Uh, you're going to get a job." And so it forced me to to get serious about making money and to get serious about career right out of the gate. So what's amazing, Greg, is that I have a very similar experience. My parents always told me they would put me through college and get me the best you know, education and I would graduate debt-free and that would be that. And that I also would be sort of on my own, chart my own path and wouldn't get another penny ever since, you know, from, the, from that moment on. And they always told me that all through middle school and high school. And I, I'm really curious now that you're a parent and I'm a parent, how, how are you approaching this with your kids? Are you being, you know, are you, uh, are you saying the same thing to your kids or how are you handling that now? Well, yeah, it's funny you say that because we've had these conversations with our children over the last couple of years. First of all, I always remind them that any money that we have or the lifestyle that they are afforded is dad and my money. It's my money and my, my husband's money and it is actually not their money. So, because I don't want them to ever think that just because we get to do something or go on a nice trip or whatever that, that, that they're going to be able to do that after they get out of school. My husband, Mark and I have been thinking about this a lot as we, as our kids are starting to get older and, and have become increasingly aware of money and the need to earn money. My youngest daughter loves to shop and is always on Amazon spending $12 here and $18 there. And finally 
And I said to her, I know you're 11. I think it's time to start earning some money. And so she actually went out of her way to find a babysitting job and to sell some, some beauty counter lip glosses that she turned into keychains. And so I do think that I'm starting to instill in my children the need to earn. If you want to do things that you're going to have to pay for things. Additionally, I have said to them that when they graduate from college, they will be given some money to get going, but that after that, we expect them to be able to stand on their own two feet and to be financially independent, that there is not going to be a bank account for them to access indefinitely. And I honestly believe this to be true. If you are in a luxurious position where you have the means with which to give your children money when they graduate from university and you've afforded them a debt-free education, I think it's extremely important and valuable for them to stand on their own two feet, whether or not you have the means with which to support them. I think that gaining financial independence, worrying about money, learning how to manage money, learning how to give give back to society are all invaluable lessons. And I think every single person, you know, should should have to go through those 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 paces after they graduate from college. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I agree. And, I, and I've been I've been uh, approaching it the same way with my kids. So let's talk about your first startup. Um, after some some positions in, in other companies, you started a company. Tell us about the wedding list. The wedding list. So, you know, you asked me about some of my my entrepreneurial endeavors. One of my entrepreneurial endeavors in my mid 20s was to start a bridesmaid's dress company because I was wearing all these hideous dresses that I hated. And I thought there has to be a better way. And so my friend and I started this bridesmaid's dress company and we were doing that on the side. My day job took me to London. And when I got to London, I was introduced to a woman, Nicole Heinmarch, who had started a wedding registry service called The Wedding List. And I was really intrigued by the concept and wanted to sell my bridesmaids dresses to her, which, you know, turns out at the time, they certainly, they weren't using bridesmaids, grown bridesmaids um, and, you know, groomsmen as we use them in the United States today. So that business opportunity was not there for me, but she and I struck up a friendship and I became very intrigued with her business model. And uh, a few years later, I approached her and I thought, you know, if we took this wedding registry service and we actually incorporated it with the internet and we created a multi-channeled approach to wedding registry that really met the needs of both the bride and groom and their guests, we could build a really successful company. And so I partnered with her. We brought the concept from London to New York, and then subsequently, you know, we moved it around the the States. And it was really, it was really, it was really one of the first true multi-channel retail businesses in the United States. And it was a really exciting moment in time. So one of the things that we explore in this podcast is lessons learned from founders and entrepreneurs. What are a couple things that you learned from your wedding list experience, which helped you at Beauty Counter? You know, look, I've made so many mistakes along the way. I think that the one of the there are a couple of lessons I learned that were you know lessons that I wish I never had to learn, but I've learned and it's made me stronger and better. The first is, and I say this all the time, and, and Spencer, you know this to be true as well. Your choice of investor is extremely important. Should you decide, you know, money is money. Once the cash hits the bank account, it really doesn't matter. Um, That's just cash. It's a commodity. But when you are choosing your partner in terms of a financial sponsor for your business, whether that's an individual, whether that's a private equity or venture capital firm, if their interests are not aligned with yours, then you're going to have a hard time building your business. And that's exactly what happened with me. Because it was really early days in terms of multi-channel and e-com, because I was a young, unproven woman, I had a really hard time raising capital for the wedding list. And I finally found a West Coast-based venture capital firm called Fremont Ventures. This firm, as it, it doesn't exist anymore. 
but you know, they made it, they made, they made an investment in the company and the concept, but they really didn't invest in me. They didn't totally believe that I had the chops to do the job. And then what happened was we actually exceeded all of our expectations and all the revenue projections, but then the dot-com market blew up and they had, you know, really forced me to expand, expand and to put money into retail and all these things. And then when the dot-com market blew up, they were nowhere to be found to continue to capitalize the business. And so it forced me to sell the company prematurely. So I think that's one life lesson and, you know, lesson in, as an entrepreneur is that you are interviewing the firm as much as they are interviewing you. And every single person that puts money behind you is going to be part of your journey. And if you don't, if you're misaligned, it's going to make your journey much more difficult so that's one of the lessons. And, I and and so just just before you move on, if you're if a, if a founder is listening to this and they're pitching VCs, like what are a couple of signs they should be looking for during that investing during that pitch process to make them think that this is going to be a good capital partner or maybe not a good capital partner? First of all, I, you know, I, I always equate things to dating. It's like when you're dating someone and you tell them that you love cycling or you love running on the beach when you actually hate the beach and you hate running. It's not a good idea. So you end up married to some guy or girl that you really have nothing in, in, in common with. And I, I see this happening certainly with younger women. I'm, you know, I'm like, don't don't pretend to be someone you're not or to like things you don't. It's the same way when when you think about business and you're, you know, if you have a vision and dream, if you're an entrepreneur, you're typically a vision to some extent, you see things and you imagine things that might not otherwise have been, you know, imagined to be possible or they don't exist today, right? That's, that's typically you're trying to iterate on something or build something new. If someone's not buying into that vision, if you don't feel confident telling the full story, talking about what you really want to do, and you're not telling them your big, bold dreams, or if you are telling them and they don't seem to agree with them or they're trying to push you in a certain direction and but that doesn't feel right to you then I would run for the hills. The other thing I think that's really important that I've done subsequent to my first entrepreneurial endeavor is I've called other entrepreneurs who have, you know, received investments from these firms or these individuals and I've asked them what it was like and how did it go and how did it go when things aren't going well and did they did they back you and stay behind you? And did they follow their money even when things were, you know, weren't going so well? Because every company is, you know, you know, a good day is when you don't make the same mistake twice. And so I think having people that you know, knowing that other, you know, entrepreneurs that have been had good success with them or, you know, in good times and bad, I think is also a really important thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think also making sure you reference checking the investor as an individual, not just as a firm is important. Um, and then making sure that your type of investment, your type of company is really well suited to that firm's expertise and area of interest. Um, you know, I was talking, for example, with a, a company the other day where their private equity sponsor was a software company, but, you know, the business really is no longer a directly a software company anymore. It's more of a consumer facing company. And and that private equity firm, they're always trying to push this company towards B2B SaaS and the company really wanted to move into consumer and uh, it just wasn't, it wasn't a good fit. Um, so uh, any other lessons from Wedding List before we, we bring us to Beauty Counter? Well, I think the only other thing I would say is don't get ahead out over your skis too much as an entrepreneur. I think a lot of times when you have a good idea, and I've just we've just seen this correction once again in the market with the COVID pandemic where people invested uh, significantly ahead of growth. And there, there's a balance there, right? Because you want to be forward thinking and you want to you want to capitalize the business and you want to hire the talent that allows you the growth trajectory that you believe is achievable. That said, if you if you get too far out ahead of your skis and something goes wrong, whether it's a global pandemic, whether it's 
the dot-com market blows up, whether it's, uh, who knows, an unanticipated uh, you know, challenge with your supply chain, it can really cripple a business. So you want to be aggressive, but you also want to be responsible with the use of the capital that you have. And, and certainly when it comes to hiring, I don't, I do believe that the 80, 20 rule that, you know, 20% of the people that you have working, you know, for you could arguably get 80% of the work done. And so having to hire huge teams doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be more successful. And oftentimes they can be, they can be very expensive and burdensome to the business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, on headcount growth in particular, you also have to remember the compounding effect of headcount growth. So people beget people. Uh, you know, if you hire a director of whatever, all of a sudden, three months later, she's going to have three managers and four individual contributors. Like, it's just like gravity. So so that person ends up uh, birthing another five to 10 people. And then there are all these other costs associated with, with headcount also that are sometimes sort of hidden. Um, so, so headcount costs can really creep up on you. Um, but yeah, I mean, managing this issue of expense growth during the growth phase of a company is really tricky. I, I was in a board meeting today going through the 2021 plan for this startup and it's just, it's very hard to know how quickly to grow expenses and, you know, you, you want to grow them in head of revenue and, and lay runway out in front of you. But as you say, you, there's sometimes no way to know whether the revenue will come in. So um, I don't know. There's there's no right answer. I'm sorry to, to those, of, those listeners who thought I would give an answer at the end of this. No, there isn't uh, a right answer. There, yeah. there, there's, there's no right answer. I do think that if you're in high growth moment, you don't. it's not the time to be super conservative. You do want to, if you gain momentum in your business, you want to run with it. That said, as I think, I think oftentimes people, people people can be a little bit reckless and get a little bit arrogant and spend a little too much, hire a few too many people, and take on way, way too many initiatives. And at the end of the day, if you stay super focused and you hire really talented people that have the ability to grow with you, and you you know, and you spend in advance of revenue, but you do it carefully and you choose your battles, you will be more successful, I think, than just throwing a bunch of money and people at the problem. It's been amazing talking with these companies um, today. You know, basically, we're, we're recording this right now in late December. Um, so many companies that I talked to did significant layoffs during COVID. They went from a thousand to five hundred, or six hundred employees to three hundred employees, two hundred employees to one hundred employees, and almost every single one of them tells me that they haven't missed a beat. That the company's more effective, more efficient. You know, they're getting more done. Um, yes, it was brutal and 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 tricky and awful managing that that uh, reduction in force and i've done that um you know twice at two of my startups at zillow and at hotwire and it sucks there's no way around it but once you're out the other end just a couple weeks later things are actually pretty good um and uh you know i just keep hearing this over and over again from companies here in, in kind of the tail end, what we hope is the tail end of covid well i think even you know non-covid related i i think that you know one of my favorite professors at stanford business school who i did not go to stanford um but i do a guest lecture there and have for years irv grosbeck always says you know hire slowly and fire quickly and i think it's mm. true and i think we tend to whether it's a major lay layoff or it's just an individual we tend to hold on to people way too long and we tend to be scared of what the workload is going to be or we can't live without them and the reality is that there's there's no one you can't live without including the founder and that ultimately if you feel the need to move someone on then you need to do it because you'll be much better off on the other end and you probably won't miss them and you'll actually be doing them a favor because they can land somewhere where they'll be really successful so tell us the founding story of beauty counter 
in 2006, I watched An Inconvenient Truth. And subsequent to that, I became very impassioned with the environmental health movement. I was living in New York, working in New York. I had given birth to my first daughter and I started to watch my friends either be diagnosed with different types of cancer, men and women who were getting sick, who were struggling with really significant fertility issues. And I started to wonder what was going on. Why were things going so wrong for the earth and why were things going terribly wrong for human health? And the one thing that I, over time, became aware of is that we were all being exposed to toxic chemicals. And for those that are listening that don't know much about this, you know, we've introduced over 85,000 chemicals into commerce since World War II, and less than 10% of them have been tested for safety on human health or the health of the earth, environmental health. And knowing that, I, I became, well, one, I became outraged, but I, but I became a little bit obsessed, to say the least, and I really wanted to get rid of these chemicals. I wanted to eradicate chemicals from my home. I should say chemicals of concern because there are plenty of chemicals like water that are perfectly fine. I was able to make changes in terms of household cleaning products. I could switch to, I don't know, a safer brand like Seventh Generation. I could wash my floors with water and vinegar. I could switch from plastic to glass and get rid of my nonstick pans. But during the course of this time and when I was making a lot of changes, I was also looking for skincare and color cosmetic products. And I just couldn't find any products that met my needs. And the more that I learned, the more that I realized that in the US, we hadn't updated a law governing our industry, the, the industry, the beauty industry since 1938, and that there were all these chemicals of concern that were being used in the products that I was putting on my body every day. And I thought that was unacceptable. And I thought, well, why am I asked to compromise my health in the name of beauty? And I thought, you know, wow, I can start a brand that actually stands for health and performance simultaneously, that protects the safety and health of people. And we can create not really just a brand, but actually a movement to, to clean up a really antiquated industry that was causing harm to human health. And that's why I started Beauty Counter. Like all the best startups and startup ideas, when the founder is incredibly passionate about that particular problem and feels personally connected to it, that's where the greatest companies are really built. Clearly, you're passionate about it. I do have to ask, though, what's wrong with nonstick pans? Should I get rid of those? Yes, you should definitely get rid of them. <laughs> what, what, there are chemicals yeah, in the nonstick? Teflon. So the, you know, when DuPont came out with the nonstick and, and Teflon, I mean, those are, um, they're called persistent chemicals. Those chemicals are now in like 95% of the waterways. They're, they're, every, they're everywhere. And they are extremely harmful to health. And in fact, if you want to watch, um, there's, a, there's a documentary film called The Devil We Know. And there was actually a, a, a commercial film done recently called um, that Mark Ruffalo starred in that just came out that was also called, oh, maybe Dark Water or something. But anyway, it's it's a persistent chemical that is known to be linked to cancer, to birth defects, et cetera. And as you are using it and heating it and cooking in it, it is it is absolutely harmful to health. So stainless steel or you know other types of pans are much, much safer for health. So yes, right. if you want thing after this podcast. All right, <laughs> there, there, there's actionable insights for you. Yeah, listeners. There you go. <laughs> Thank you for that. Okay, um, so, um, so, so I, I'm, I'm really interested in the brand positioning of being better for you. And I want to also talk about the distribution channel, which is one of the other really unique things about Beauty Counter, but just focusing for a second on on the better for you, you know, aspect of the brand, how does that come through to the, to the customer? Do you feel they, you know, do, do, do your customers like really embrace that, understand that, know it, does it, or, or is it, um, you know, is it lost on some of them? 
I feel like I have three jobs at Beauty Counter. First and foremost, I feel like my job is to educate, to arm people with information so that they can make informed choices on behalf of themselves and their families. And so education is a huge part of what we do. And whether that's explaining that we have an updated law since 1938 or explaining that the FDA doesn't actually have the ability to screen ingredients for safety or to recall products in the in the cosmetic or personal care industry if they are known to cause harm to health, you know, our job is to educate. We, you know, we then formulate and use commerce as an engine for change. And then we use our collective community to advocate tirelessly for cosmetic reform so that hopefully in due time, all American citizens or North American citizens, as we're also in Canada, have access to safer products. And so some people, some people make that immediate leap of faith and they understand armed with information, they want to make better choices. Others, you know, it takes them a longer time to come around, especially men. I find women tend to be more focused on this than, than their male counterparts and it takes them a little bit longer. But, you know, my job is just to focus on building this movement and to do the best job I can to protect people's health and safety and whether people are intrigued by that or not is not something I focus on. The way that companies bring their products to market and the distribution channels they choose frequently determine the success or failure of that company. Uh, describe Beauty Counter's go-to-market and its distribution channel. Today's consumer demands of his or her brand that they can shop their brand where they want, when they want, how they want. No longer is there a day when you can narrowly define the distribution and expect someone to sort of jump to where you want them to go. And so I feel in keeping with the times, we always need to have a multi-pronged, multi-channeled approach. So when I started Beauty Counter, we obviously were going to have our e-commerce platform, beautycounter.com. And I also wanted to create a movement. And so I decided to, to build a community of independent sellers right out of the gate who were advocates for the brand, who were building businesses on our platform and who were helping us, you know, fight the, you know, fight the good fight in, in on both the state and federal level to hopefully, you know, fulfill our mission of getting safer pots into the hands of everyone. And so today we have about 65,000 women and men across North America who have built businesses as independent sellers in our community. We have our e-commerce platform, beautycounter.com. We have a couple of stores. We just opened one in Los Angeles about two weeks ago. We've been in New York for a few years in Denver. And then we do strategic partnerships from time to time. We just finished one with Sephora and we've done others with Target and large retailers. And our goal is to meet our clients where they want to, to interact with us. And and we, we're actually, you know, interestingly building on that today. We've launched something called Live at Abikini, and we're just in the test and learn phase. But we believe that the future of retail and e-commerce will incorporate live streaming and allow you to build intimacy and, and collaborative relationships with your consumer in a live streaming shopping, you know, content filled con uh, concept. And so we started doing that. And so there are a lot of ways in which you can interact with our brand, but our brand has always been powered by people. And the, and the largest way that in which we interact with our clients is through our community of independent sellers. And I mean, you've provided them not just with this um, raw material, raw material for a movement around clean living, but also financial independence in many cases, which is powerful. Talk about the impact that that has on that community of sellers you know, well, first of all, I, as I sit here today in December of 2020, and I look at the fact that one in four women is leaving the workforce, I, I think we're going backwards. I think COVID has not been helpful uh, for women in the workforce. The ability to create economic opportunities for women and men is extremely important. It's actually a byproduct of what I set out to do. I didn't set out to, to create economic opportunities for people. I set out to change the world by making safer products and to, to change an industry. But what's been so powerful is to watch people gain 
financial independence or to see people who are working, you know, businesses, you know, oftentimes on the side, but some of them are working this as a full-time primary job. And, and, you know, the average person only makes a couple hundred dollars a month because they're not really spending a lot of time, but there are people that have been able to replace six figure incomes and beyond. And that makes me really happy because I do want to see women in the workforce and I do want to see women on, you know, equal footing with their, with their partners and their spouses, you know, and, and some of that does come down to, to earning. I, I, I hate to say mm-hmm. it, but I think for many, for many people, when you're not in a position to earn and contribute to your family, it does shift the dynamic. And so I've seen a lot of wonderful things come out of it. What impact has gender played in your career? And what advice do you give to young women entering the workforce? Well, I certainly think that you can look at being a woman as an asset or a liability. And I look at it as an asset. I think that women have a very high level of emotional intelligence. Oftentimes you can sneak up and surprise the men around you with your knowledge. I do think, you know, at the end of the day, women control the entire consumer market and we are the ones that do all the spending. And so to, to the extent that you're not leaning in as a woman to, to drive where the consumer market is going, I think that's, that's, you know, I think that's too bad. And I think that women should go out with more confidence. I think that the, if there's one thing that I've seen now having worked with close to you know 75,000 women over the last couple of years is that they all lack confidence and they're constantly apologizing for the decisions that they make or for the raise that they're asking for, the promotion that they want. And I think that if women were to go out with confidence and le- use the fact that they're a woman to their advantage and feel that that's an asset and not a liability, I think that they would be more successful in general in business. And that's, I mean, it's hard to make a blanket statement, but I do believe that to be true. And I think leaning on men and, and, and affording men the opportunity to help you grow is also an important part of this. So it's having the confidence to interact and, the, and, the, and also knowing when to, when to ask for help. And that doesn't always have to come from your same sex. You can, you know, you certainly, I've got a lot of men that I ask a lot of questions of and that I rely on day in and day out. And I would never be where I am today without men. And I'm also there because my mother and father gave me the confidence that as a woman, I could be whatever I wanted to be as long as I worked really hard. Has having a, a name that is typically a male name impacted you in <laughs> oh, any way? Yes, yes, of course. It's like total nightmare. I mean, I was like, what are you thinking? Uh, so, you know, Greg is my mother's maiden name. <clears throat> my father was from the South and thought it was sort of normal to use a man's name. And literally every single time I meet someone or every time I call, they'll say, well, you don't sound like a Greg. I would say this. It's been, for the most part, a nightmare. That said, it's a name that no one forgets. <laughs> so I wouldn't do it to my own daughter, um, but, you know, it is what it is. People say, oh, I met this person who knows you. And I'm like, I don't think they know me. I think they just remember my name. And so it's easy to say they know me because <laughs> how many women do they know named Greg? All right, last question. Um, so at Dot LA, we try to shine a light on all the innovation that's happening in the LA tech community and consumer community. Um, what impact does Los Angeles have on you and on your company? First of all, I feel very fortunate that I've had the opportunity to build my business in Los Angeles. When you think about clean living, whether that's focusing on the environment, sustainability, healthy food, healthy skincare, cosmetics, I mean, you know, whatever, electric scooters, whatever, you see so much happening in Los Angeles. And I think that if I were 22 and graduating from university today, and I was choosing a city in which to live, I would be running for LA. And and I wouldn't have said that. I'm I'm a diehard New Yorker. I grew up in New York City. But I think in this moment in time, we are so well ahead of the curve in so many things that are happening. It's a really exciting time to be in Los Angeles. And I think that I've been able to attract people into our business that believe in our mission, are purpose-driven, 
who think outside of the box and who genuinely want to live a healthier, cleaner life. And so it's made it easier for me to, to build in Los Angeles versus some other cities. That said, I think the pool of talent is still limited. And so I'm always encouraging people to come to LA. Plus, I think it's one of the best kept secrets in the United States. Thanks so much, Greg. Congrats on everything. And uh, thanks for telling your story here. Thank you for having me. That's it for this episode of Office Hours. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm your host, Spencer Raskoff. If you could leave a rating or a review for the show, I'd greatly appreciate it. Also, please tweet at me on Twitter, at Spencer Raskoff. And check out .LA, that's D-O-T period L-A. While you're there, sign up for our daily newsletter to get the latest developments on Los Angeles tech. See you next time. Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Ben, take it away. Cool. Yeah, no, thanks everyone for, for making some time to, to listen. Hopefully um, it will be more of a conversation, a webinar versus a conversation. And so I have a bunch of notes that you'll you'll probably see me reading from, but um, as I try to organize my thoughts, but please jump in with with questions um, and and push me on things to the extent that, that something's not clear. So yeah, so as Eric said, I, I was at first round most recently. And before that, I had a fitness video game startup and I was the creative director at AM1. Um, sort of coming out of college, and that's sort of my my professional uh, career so far. Uh, while I was at first round, I, I got to work on a on a ton of things, um, build partnerships with with companies in healthcare like um, Patient Paying and Clover Health, uh, sort of in the low code, no code, whatever you want to call it, space like Notion and um, Glide and Clay, subscription economy, Blue Apron and and Birchbox, and also Steady, Clearbit, uh, Persona, Modern Fertility, uh, some others. So. Got to work with some amazing entrepreneurs um, and, and got to build some things like Dormer Fund, um, Angel Track, uh, and recruit partners and sort of help to take the firm from four partners and four admins and a CFO when I joined to sort of what it is today, which is like 43 people and a huge platform, et cetera. Um, and so sort of happy to share my point of view on any of that. If, if folks sort of offline are thinking about joining a firm or, or starting one, have a lot of thoughts about what makes for a successful uh, partnership as well as for successful firms, uh, brand building, et cetera. The, the thing I wanted to talk about today and, and um, something that, that I sort of studied uh, over the last 10 years at first round is the concept of the, the founder interview. And, and I think that when people decide to shift from uh, their primary attention being on uh, operating um, to, to investing, uh, it is one of the things, one of the skills that you can really focus on um, and and get much better at. And so I wanted to talk through a couple of kind of foundational beliefs that I hold around uh, investing. And then I'll go into some specifics, uh, hopefully actionable for you all around questions you can ask and areas to push on. And then uh, a second piece on specifically how to think about asking those questions so that you get the best information. Uh, so, so first, I think I would say, in my experience, investing is simple, but it's super hard. 
and simple meaning the things you need to do are pretty obvious. Uh, you know, access great entrepreneurs, decide which ones you want to partner with, convince them to partner with you, and then support them in in the, like their success, and then repeat the process. And and so I think that it's it's simple, but each of those things is very hard. Um, and hopefully this 20, 40 minutes, whatever it ends up being, um, is a way to help you get better at the decide part and, and also some of the win part. So a second thing that that I've come to believe about investing is that your investment partnership is a product that a founder buys with their equity. Uh, as an investor, you're definitely on the sell side. And I sort of think about that as like every time a, an investor has, has said yes to a founder, given them a term sheet, um, in that moment, you're effectively saying, your equity is worth more than my money. Like, please take my money. Um, and, and so you really need to think about being on the sell side of the equation rather than the buy side where you sort of show up late to meetings unprepared and sit back and ask someone sort of what they've got for you. It's also a hard product to generate a high MPS because you, you need to earn, you know, high satisfaction from customers, but you're in a world where 99% of customers don't get what they want because just by the odds, you're going to say no to 99% of people. And so you have this problem as a, as a PM of your investor product that you have to create something that will, people will refer to their friends even when they don't get what they want. And, and so I think the way you actually approach the interview with a founder, your engagement with them well before the investment um, is probably your highest leverage uh, point of distribution for you know, your reputation in the market. Uh, I think there's clearly you can do things that that help founders after you've invested, but the vast majority of founders you interact with, you're never going to invest in. And, and so really focusing actually on how you want that product, the pre-investment product to be perceived um, is is a critical piece of kind of building your reputation as an investor. Um, I don't think there's a right way to be an investor, but there's, I think I've seen lots of wrong ways, both as an entrepreneur and and, and as an investor. And I can't tell if it's if it's correlation or, or causation, but in my experience, like being an investor makes most people into arrogant assholes. There's just sort of this incredible thing that happens when you have money. All of a sudden, there's this power thing that you assume, and people start to act in ways that um, they they maybe wouldn't have expected. Uh, I think it sort of erodes empathy for the founders, and and it tends to amplify a sense of importance, intelligence, foresight, whatever you want to call it. Um, and, and I think that. These are things that you really need to be hyper aware of, both in yourself, but also because as you act, as you act as an investor, when a founder meets you, they're bringing a lot of expectations to that meeting, and so they're going to, in some ways, interpret a lot of things that you do uh, through the negative lens that comes from the reputation that that many investors have, and and sort of the the ghosting and blowing people off and and some of that arrogance. I think you have to be hyper hyper sensitive because even if what you're putting in the world is neutral, it can be interpreted as, as negative. And so, so for me, I was thinking back on when I decided to become an investor and, and sort of what that meant, how I could get better. And you know, what, what I've come to is, is being an investor, your job is basically to imply, apply your judgment to information that you have about a company and then when you're able to find a partnership with that founder, um, then you do everything you can to support their success. And so if you think about that as the fundamental role and you want to think about how to get better, you can, you can improve the quality of the pool that you're, that you're fishing in. So you can, you can work on your network and your access and, and hope that on average, all the founders you meet with are better and therefore the selections you make will be better companies. You can improve the quality of the information you have. 
so the, what do you know about the founder? What do you know about the company? What do you know about the market? Um, and hopefully that helps you make better decisions. Uh, you can improve the quality of your judgment, but I think the only way to really do that is through experience over a long period of time and the, the feedback loops are, are very long. And then you can improve the quality of your support that you offer to founders, which is effectively coaching. And, and so for me, in joining first round and then thinking about how to get better, I really became obsessed with, with how to improve the quality of the information that I was gathering. So the interview, which is what I'm going to talk about mostly today, and then how to improve the quality of the support, which was the coaching. And the reason that I picked both of those things is because my experience in becoming an investor was lots of people telling me, oh my God, that's amazing. Congratulations. Now, good luck and go find the next Stripe, Uber, Facebook, you know, whatever it is that was their point of reference for a successful company. And it just wasn't very helpful. But if you break investing down into those commiserate pieces and you focus on interviewing and coaching, each of those topics is broadly written about, um, studied, uh, et cetera. There's, there's lots of approaches to both. So you can kind of pick and choose like interviewing. You can interview like a recruiter. Um, you can interview like a journalist, but you can interview like a law enforcement person, coaching like an executive coach, like a life coach, basketball coach. And, and so I think, I think there was lots of examples that, that I could sort of draw from. Uh, what I've tried to do in, in sort of drafting out some thoughts to, to share with you all is take my lessons from, I, I went back and looked and I've partnered at first round and, and as an angel with 63 founders at this point. I think my average is about 150 to one in terms of meetings versus uh, investments. So that's 9,450 interviews. Uh, and and this is, this is sort of um, hopefully a summary of the things that I've learned and, and organized in a way that's actionable, you know, for, for you all. Um, so the first thing I would say, because most of you are operators, is um, there's this thing when you think about um, the, the analogy is sort of chocolate souffle or brownies, right? And if you, if you think about chocolate souffle or brownies, they have a lot of the same ingredients, right? And so the danger of being good as an operator, whether you're in product, engineering, you know, BD, whatever it is, is, and then you decide to be an investor, is that when a founder comes to you and they start talking about, you know, the chocolate, the sugar, the butter, the milk, cream, et cetera, how they're going to put it all together, in your head, you're saying, what would I do with those ingredients, right? And, and you're imagining this like molten center chocolate lava cake and, and you know, this, this souffle cake. And so then you decide to invest, right? And you tell the founder like, I'm in, this is amazing. I can't wait. You wire the money. A month later, the founder comes back with a tray of brownies and they say, look what I did. And you say, oh my God, what did you do? This is horrible. This is not what you should have done. And you're really upset about your investment because you wanted chocolate souffle and they came back with brownies. But the truth is in the first meeting and in every conversation you had with them, they were talking about brownies, but you didn't hear it because you were thinking about what would I do with my operating expertise with these ingredients. And I think that that mindset shift from what would I do with this opportunity to what is the founder going to do with this opportunity is a critical thing as you, as you think about sort of taking what you know as an operator and applying it as an investor. And so when, when you try to start doing that, I think you, you want to remember that a successful use of your time as an investor is when you spend time with a founder, you're gathering information. The goal is to support you making a great decision. There's it to create a good product for the founder, but the goal of that time is for you to make a better decision. Um, and I think that when you do that, the, the thing that was most helpful to me was shifting from sort of open-minded curiosity when I met with founders to 
coming into that meeting with with a position uh, around the business, what was exciting? Obviously, something was exciting because I decided to take the meeting in the first place. But with a specific point of view that I was trying to ask questions about to validate or disprove my beliefs about the company um, so that I could ultimately get to a yes or no uh, on the business. And I think as you go through that time with the founder, always having a position at each moment as sort of new information comes out as to whether you're closer to the thesis that you had and more excited, further from the thesis and, and less excited, or maybe further from the thesis, but even more excited than, than what you thought coming in. Um, but remembering that, that like your goal in that meeting is to get to a yes or no, or identify additional kind of open questions that will help you make a better decision to, to sort of validate or, or disprove your assumptions about the business. Um, you can make a list of kind of, you know, facts that you want to validate, assumptions that the founder has that you want to push on with other folks that you know, um, you know, higher level questions about the CEO or team dynamic, these types of things, um, writing them down to be able to then leave that meeting, go do that work and come back to the founder um, ultimately with an answer. Um, and and so I think, I think when you think about doing that, you want to structure the interview, right? And, and if you've done recruiting, everybody talks about structured interviews being much, much better than just random kind of conversations. And I think that you can actually get very good at structuring the interview um, with a little bit of prep work. It doesn't take a ton of time. And, you know, everyone will tell you like they have some version of asking about product and market and team and figuring out what you want to know. And, and I'll get into some of that. But I think those three things miss one really important ingredient. And this goes back to product, which is the missing ingredient um, is the relationship or the tone that you want to set with the founder. Uh, and, and you want to do this for two reasons. One is it will dramatically affect the quality of the information you're able to gather. And then two, it'll affect your ability to, to win, to get allocation in the, in the opportunity, um, you know, should you decide that you, that you want to. And so I think when you think about that relationship, that, that should be your highest order bit. People talk about recruiting for companies. And I know some folks that will spend the first sort of 15 minutes of any interview, making sure that if the next 45 minutes go well and they want to hire the person, that that person will say yes. And so it's almost like the opening 15 minutes is like a sell job. Um, I don't think you need to go that far, but I do think that you want to make the founder super comfortable, feel respected, and, and make sure they know that you care about this time you're spending with them, that you value the time. And, and I think in doing that, you can you get to ground truth much more quickly you get the founder very comfortable expressing what they really believe about the opportunity, why they're going after it, um, how they see the world, and away from sort of the sales pitch, which, which can be um, sort of like the talking points. Uh, and then also, because you're showing them a tremendous amount of respect, when you ask to be included in the investment, I think the probability they say yes, I think goes, goes way, way up. Um, and, and so I think focusing on the relationship is, is super important. I think a lot of people jump right to the questions about sort of product market team um, to to make your investment decision without remembering that one you want the truth about that stuff and then two you want the founder to say yes when when you say you want them when you say you want to invest um, and so I think I think to that end like questions questions that expose you've done some work right so and you care about them as a person right where are they from what brought them to the Bay Area if you if you're in San Francisco or now you know we're virtual so knowing where they're calling from or like, why are they spending time in Provo, Utah? You know, if you've done some background work on them, right? If you if you see that they worked at a company where you know someone, asking them if they know that person, right? Oh, I saw you worked at Twitter. Do you know so-and-so? Even if they don't know the person, it shows that you've thought about them, you've done some background work, and you also have this sort of 
secondary connection potential to, to their life and the work that they've done. And I think as you get through that, then you can also ask people, you know, general softball questions like, you know, what's your purpose with the company? And everybody loves to talk. It's an easy, positive question. It sets the meeting off on a really positive um, foot because they get to talk about their vision, what they're most excited about, why they're doing this thing before you get into some of the hard questions about how it's going to work and why they're going to win. Uh, so I think focusing on the relationship is is super important. Second thing is is in product. And and I think here, I always sort of said it's it's less about evaluating the product itself. Like some folks maybe are really, really good at product and, and can make decisions based on actually the quality of the product in front of them. Um, for me, I, I always sort of viewed the product as a proxy for for uh, like an opening for how do you how did the founder make these decisions it gives you an opportunity to ask questions about you know why is the button blue or red is much more important than whether i think it should be blue or red and and so i think talking to a founder about the product decisions they've made encouraging them to demonstrate sort of a deep understanding of the customer problem as well as the product ecosystem um, to show off you know what they know and why they're doing it um, you know, some things I like to ask are like, for example, you know, can you explain to me like a five-year-old what problem you're trying to solve, right? And have them really b- dumb it down, make it super simple. What is the problem you're trying to solve? And then you can you can go through a litany, like, right? Like, does your user know they have this problem or, or not? And if not, why not? You know, how do they solve the problem today? What tools do they use today? How do they become aware of those tools? What's the decision process prior to adoption? You know, all of these things, you can sort of run down these rabbit holes around how deep has a person gone on the customer problem and, and the product that they're building? When you think about the solution, you want to make sure, obviously, it's solving that problem, but also that it's unique or defensible in, in some way. And you can ask directly, like, what is unique? What's the unique value you're going to offer? Why is it different? But then I think you can go further and say, sort of, okay, if that's why it's different or unique, what are the product principles that are key to delivering this value to the customer? How are you going to do that? What are you optimizing for? And how do those key principles then impact your approach to product management, who you hire, the sequencing, the way you go to market, all these things. And you're looking for consistent sort of through lines in the founder's narrative as you dig on these questions that I think tell you a lot more about how they think about product rather than just evaluating the product itself and, oh, it's beautiful, so therefore they must be good at product. You know, what makes the product easier to use uh, or more valuable for a first-time user as you scale, as you add features? What makes the product harder to stop using over time? You know, and why does it get lock-in? And making sure they understand these things. And so I think when you think about asking about product, which is critical, what you're trying to get at, I think, is is their product mindset more so than some evaluation of the actual product that they've already built, or even you know the the mock-up that they're showing you and and sort of how how well designed it is. Um, as you as you move to market, um, I think I think you really want to figure out from the founder's point of view why they think this category needs to exist um, and what the world will look like if the company creates or dominates the category that, that they're going after. Um, I think I tend to, to focus more on how they read the market, sort of the forces that are at play, the competition, um, the structure of the market itself, sort of the architecture rather than the, the size of the market. Um, I think, I think m- more great investments have been missed because people thought market size was too small um, and, and either didn't understand how large a niche could be um, or didn't understand how actually market creation uh, would occur either because of some fundamental technical change, societal change, or um, you know, some insight that, that somebody had. And so I think in that case, looking for clarity about the market forces um, 
and and sort of asking about you know what what do they see as the structure of the market? Who are their competitors today? What, why is it that way? Why has this market that they're going after evolved in this way, where you have a couple dominant players at the top, or where it's fractured and you have lots of service providers and you're going to roll them all up? Um, you know, what do they think will happen over the next few years? And is there some trend or fundamental shift that they're riding to success that they're sort of seeing before before others? Um, and and how do they plan to do that? I think as you do this you can listen for the assumptions um, that they're making, which I think is a great way to, I'm not a fan of case interviews, but to the extent that you hear a founder express an answer with an assumption, being able to ask, push on that and say, okay, but what if that plays out differently, right? Like what if, what if margins actually don't expand and you know, you, you're not able to charge the way you think you will uh, in this premium way? Um, you know, what if that doesn't happen? What will you do? What would be the first sign that this is happening? Like, how would you know this was starting to happen? Would it be a competitor kind of undercutting you and offering part of your service for free? Would it be someone accepting a you know loss leader because they have like a bundled product and you're just coming at them with a single solution, et cetera? And then how would you adjust? And so I think getting into the game a little bit of seeing how the founder deals with uncertainty, the way they think about adjusting to a new sort of piece of information or, or a new landscape that come around a corner and it looks different than they expected, uh, is is a really great thing to learn, particularly in a first in a first interview, because the only thing that is certain is they'll face tremendous uncertainty, and you're you're effectively at the highest level betting on like a founder's ability to navigate that. Uh, and so I think being able to ask specific questions that reveal some of how they would do that um, is much better than sort of grinding somebody on like the way they figured out TAM, um, which just doesn't doesn't sort of seem super interesting. Uh, and then I think the last thing to push on, particularly early, and it's much more important than ultimate size is you know, how are they gonna hack into the market to start the company? Like what's their unfair distribution advantage? How do they plan to get sort of some sense of leverage distribution and you know, be able to, to get the product up and running, get the flywheel spinning in some way that's unfair that, that potentially others don't have, or that really leans on their, their unique insights. So like Steady, for example, is a new EDI company. He, he comes out of the, um, the, the auto parts space. And so he found a way to partner with this auto parts distributor uh, as a way to test his beliefs about EDI, how he could create forms that would get small vendors on, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so he sort of had this like development partner early, but this development partner happened to have a very, very large audience of, of lots of sizes. And so that was help, that helped him get to market. That's just, just one example. Um, and then the last bit is on um, team. And, and team obviously is critical and everyone has their own sort of taste in teams. And I think this is the area where, you know, it's, it's completely subjective, but, but I think, um, you know, you, you need to make sure you're picking a team you believe is suited to the opportunity um, that can deliver sort of in the near term. But I also think the reason taste here really matters is because you want to pick sort of folks that seem reasonable to work with and, and that you in particular will be excited to work with. And, and so I think, you know, I, I tend to look for like people with a deep need to win, but not take credit. Um, skilled storytellers, because I think that impacts recruiting, selling, fundraising, you know, and then seem reasonable to work with in terms of how they take feedback and their level of curiosity, the stuff that they're excited about, whether they wear good sneakers or not, um, all of those things that are important. And so, so I like to, to ask a couple of things about team, you know, to understand their process. Like I, I tend to ask them, what was the last idea they said no to before they committed to this? Um, and why didn't they pursue that idea? Like what was the thinking? And that one's super easy because people can they can they can be analytical in a negative way, 
and it gives you a sense of how they might say no to things as they lead the company, um, which I which I like. I think to to understand their priorities, asking people sort of what's the most important thing that happened at the company in the last week is a great question because one, there's always something, or at least there should be. Two, it's a positive and they're excited about it, um, so they like to talk about it and talk about it a lot. But then three, the thing they pick is probably more indicative of what they think is important to the company than if you just ask them sort of, you know, what are your priorities right now, right? And, and so I think you can, you can get at some deeper understanding of the team by asking questions that sort of carry, carry multiple meaning. There's, there's also, um, you know, things around ego where, you know, I think the, if, you, if you have concerns about team dynamic, one of the hacks I like is if there's two people in the room, talk to the one that's not the CEO and just see how long the CEO will tolerate being ignored. Um, and it can be a little socially awkward, but, but it works pretty well. Um, and you can also see when, you know, if, if you typically it's like CEO, CTO. And so if you ask the CTO a question that's more appropriate for the CEO, do they try to answer it because they never get a chance to talk in any meeting. And so they, they want to take stage, you hand them the mic and they want to use it. Um, or do they appropriately sort of pass it back to the, to the CEO in, in that case? So th- those are just kind of some, some tactical things around product market team and, and relationship um, and what I like to ask. The, the next section that I wanted to run through and it'll take about 10 minutes is sort of thinking about actually the how, like how you actually set up the interview. And so I don't know if, if folks have questions on the, the what to ask, I'm happy to jump in or, or just keep going on the, the tactic, sort of the how, how to set up an interview, but you guys let me know. Yeah, I have a quick question. When sure. you're talking to a founder, you kind of see them as a um, like a final product, so to speak, and like think about their context for day today, whether you're gonna invest or not, or have you ever done where you like think they're missing some aspect and then mentor them to get there and then fund them? I think you can do both. I, I I've done both. Um, and I think I think usually though, you know, you're not looking for well rounded people, you're looking for people with spikes that you can potentially amplify. And so in the cases where I've done what you're saying, which is sort of you talk to someone, you don't quite get there on feeling like you want to invest yet, but then you continue to be in touch with them, continue to support them. And then the round comes together maybe later and you're able to participate. Um, I think that's what you're saying. I, I've definitely done that. Um, but for me, it's been, a, it's been a process of figuring out how to amplify their existing strengths rather than figuring out how to mitigate some weakness that I'm concerned about um, for what it's worth. Uh, my, my last investment actually through first round was an example of that, uh, there's a company called Iggy, um, and Lindsay is amazing. Um, and I was talking to her, she's doing basically Clearbit for, for geo data. And, you know, she was moving from being a data scientist, product manager to being a CEO. And the nice thing was we sort of had time as she was in an accelerator to, to talk through how she was thinking about that evolution. And, you know, I probably spent four months talking to her every other week before we got to the point of investment. Uh, which was great. And we get to build a real relationship before the investment. The other reality though, is the market moves so fast right now that it's just, it's oftentimes, you, you know, by the, when, when someone, when a founder is taking time to talk to an investor, at least when I was sitting at first round, you know, it was typically the case that they were raising money. And so I had to decide more in the binary in the moment. I think as an individual angel, you probably have more opportunity to kind of get to know folks and maybe talk to them months before a round is coming together. Thanks. Hey, Finn. Um, yeah. I was kind of curious. It's like, I like your approach of trying to stay as neutral as possible as going into a deal, but I'm kind of curious if like you have experiences of when you went predisposed to either like or hate a deal going in and if like the interaction actually changed that like to, to the other way. There have been times where I've gone in hating something and, and came out liking it. 
Um, but those are only in partner meetings because I wouldn't, or where a, another partner asked me to take a meeting. Cause like, if I don't like something, I would never waste it. Like you don't want to waste the founder's time if you're even like 49% yes. Right. Like I think, I think you should only take a founder's time if you're pretty excited and you want to sort of validate what you're understanding. Um, and that could be that you're not so sure about the business, but the person's amazing, right? It doesn't have to be a complete picture. Um, and so I think uh, many more cases where you sort of are, I've been excited about what my understanding was from reading a deck or, or a referral from someone or maybe a quick phone call with a founder and then had a meeting and realized that my excitement was either a local maxima or like completely fucking wrong. And the thing I should really be excited about was this total other thing that I missed entirely. Right. So like, you know, with glide is a good example. Like when I first heard about glide, I was like, Oh, it's like an app builder. Like who cares? Right. This is like, ah, uh, it's an app builder and the guys are smart and like, you know, but how many mobile app builders do we really need? And, you know, if you go back to like some of like, like mobile roadie and some of these other things that sort of, you know, they, they never really found these big audiences. And so like, why should I care about glide? Um, but the teams from Xamarin, they're super smart. I have a chance to meet them. They seem like they're getting some buzz in YC. I can meet them a couple of weeks before demo day. Let me just, I'll take a 45 minute meeting. And as I sat down with David and what became very clear to me in that first meeting was the thing that I was missing completely was that what Glide actually is, is finding a way to take the most broadly understood programming language, which is relational database and make it read, write accessible on the most broadly distributed computing device, which is the mobile phone, right? And that is is like this massive opportunity, which has nothing to do with app building or, or sort of what I kind of thought it was. And, you know, I kicked myself because I should have known better, like a team of that quality wasn't going to go after app building. Um, but I'm glad I took the meeting based on sort of the spike, which was quality of team. And, and I sort of took my skepticism around what they were doing and let them tell the beginning of the story so that I was able to get actually what they were doing and apply the right lens. I don't know if that answers your question, but that, that's where I thought about that. Cool. Well, let me let me jump through some some sort of question structure, tactical interviewing tips, and then open it up for for all you know all the rest of the questions if there are any. Um, I just want to make sure I get through this because I think this is actually um, probably if if the stuff before is is narrowly around investing, I think this is applicable to any style of, of investing or or maybe even any style of interview. So. The first thing I would say is, um, and this this actually is a reflection of work I've done by studying other types of interviewing, not and applied it to my work as an investor, um, rather than looking at sort of like the best investors and how they tend to approach them. Um, so, one thing just to keep in mind is that the best questions are open ended, like they begin with how, what, where, when, why, and they terminate with a question mark. Um, they're direct, they're open ended, short, not sort of some big long thing with a preamble, and you go on and on and on. Um, you know, the three to five minute question is terrible. Um, and, and they're, they're conversation starters that encourage expansive answers that produce sort of like more information than you were looking for um, and, and help you kind of round out the full picture of the story, right? I think closed-ended questions are, are okay, but the, the use is more limited. So, you know, they're, they're, they're important when you need a direct answer. You know, like, okay, what is the paid acquisition cost? If someone, you know, it's closed-ended, but it puts you on record um, and it allows you to sort of use that as a building block maybe for the next open-ended question. But I think for the most part, open-ended questions are much better. You know, can you walk me through how you're acquiring customers and then just stop, let them answer the question. 
can you, you know, and then you can dig, well, what does it cost? And you can ask direct questions within that narrative, but I think open-ended questions are far better than closed. And then the thing to really avoid, which I think particularly, again, operators with experience tend to do this, is sort of the double-barreled question or even triple-barreled questions, right? So one, you give the person you're asking a, que- a choice of which one do they want to, do they want to answer? So they can sort of pick, right? Like you say, like, so what's, what's churn and why do people cancel? And now they can pick whichever one they want to talk about. And you're not going to get the answer that you're really looking for. The, the other thing is if you sort of say, okay, you know, what would you do if X happened? That's a good hypothetical versus the narrowness of information you gather when you say, if X happened, would you do Y? Now you're much more in a yes or no, or like you've gone down the funnel a little bit. And then even worse is like, if X happened, would you do A, B, C, or D, right? And that's like the classic operator, terrible question. Because you're thinking of all the things you might do, and then you're looking for the founder just to like figure out, okay, which one do you think is the smartest? And I'm just going to say that one, because then you're going to think I'm the smartest because I agree with you. But that doesn't teach you anything about the founder. It just teaches you they're good at reading you. And it's not, not helpful. So I think really that trying to be open-ended. Another thing just to think about in general as you, as you uh, hone your interviewing practice is, is to ask, and I would ask all of you, like, are you comfortable with silence? So that's like eight seconds. I've gone as far as 15 seconds and only once if I had somebody see like, are you all right? What's wrong with you? Right. But getting comfortable with silence and asking a question and just shutting up and waiting, people hate silence and they'll fill it. Right. And then you just let them talk. So when they, they, you know, you ask a question, you know, what's churn? And they say, oh, well, over the last couple of months, churn's gone down a little bit because, you know, we did this and this um, and it's, you know, whatever percent. And if you just look at them, then they'll keep going and talk about, why churn was high and what happened that made it that way or or the insight that they had that that took churn from you know 40% to 10% and what was it that they shifted and how did that impact the rest of the business etc and so i think i think working on the socially awkward thing of getting comfortable with silence is a is a is a really important thing to do so you create space for the founder to talk beyond their talking points um, you know and it makes sense right like to interview better you just want to listen more um, and, and it allows the, you to learn more about the founder rather than sort of, you know, the founder learning more about you. Um, you know, and as you, as you do that, I think it allows you also to remain flexible and sort of listen for hints, little interesting things that suggest questions that you hadn't thought of. And then that leads me to another point, which is, you know, don't be afraid to ask naive questions, right? Um, and, and even sort of the, the treading water question as you're trying to understand something sort of the, you know, what do you mean by that? Or, or why is that the case um, that just keeps the person talking and helps you learn more about them rather than like, you know, tying something off and then starting a new topic. Um, you know, when you want people to say more, you can always, the classic, like repeat their answer uh, as if you're trying to understand it. Like, you know, if I understand you correctly and then you summarize what you heard and then they'll always like go one level deeper and, and sort of continue that, that thread when it's bad is when you're afraid to ask naive questions, right? And I think you, you'll you miss tremendous pieces of information because then effectively what you're gonna take away from the interview is a larger percentage, your assumptions about the answers, your connections of the dots rather than the founder doing that for you. And so I think it's really important when your goal is for you to make a better decision, the belief that if you can gather better information, you're like your judgment will improve linearly, but if you can step change the information that you're applying your judgment to, you can step change your the quality of decision-making. And so I think being willing to ask those naive questions 
um, being willing to kind of keep the founder talking and to make sure that the interview is mostly them telling you things rather than, than you telling them. You know, and then at the end of the day, when you think about your interview, like the, the goal of gathering that data and asking yourself as you come out of the interview, because this is an iterative process and unlike actually making investment decisions where like you don't fucking know if you're right for five years, seven years, 10 years, you have no idea, right? And even if you have a, you know, it looks like you're right, you might be wrong still, like, you know, things can fall apart. So I think the feedback loops are really long on the actual investments, but the founder and interviews that happens really frequently and i used to have a practice of, of and i still will do this is like sending out anonymous uh, feedback surveys to founders and that was the information i got back was amazing um you know was i prepared was i on time did i pay attention etc um but i think you can also ask yourself some things as you come out of the interview like do i understand enough about this company to state my thesis clearly support it with quotes from the founder like facts that i go find after the fact documentation etc what are the spikes in this opportunity that get me to a yes? Um, and then potentially, like, what am I concerned about? Um, but, but having a very specific set of reasons that you're excited to invest and that you can back up with sort of documentation just for yourself, I think, is a great practice to know if you're getting better. And you can, you'll realize, like, oh, I, actually, I don't. And maybe that means you're not ready to make the investment decision. Maybe it means you want to talk to the founder more. Uh, or maybe you just make the investment decision anyway. But, but for the next interview, you, you do a better job. You know, do I do I have enough information to write a coherent list of things I would like to verify or learn more about? Like, did you take good notes on the things that you didn't understand or that sounded off to you that you want to verify after the fact? And then I think, you know, coming out of a meeting, knowing in your in your heart, like, should I invest my capital and more importantly, my time? Like, will I look forward to working with these founders? Have I learned enough about them to get a sense um, of this? And And just sort of keep reminding yourself throughout the interview that when you leave, the one thing you're going to do is you're going to make a decision. You're going to decide yes, you're going to decide no, or you're going to decide to learn more. And your job in that 45 minutes, in addition to making the founder like you so you can get in if, if you want to, is to be able to make forward progress on that effort. Um, and I think a lot of people lose track of that. And so you have a great conversation with a smart person, but you don't actually learn the pointed things that you need to know in order to drive your investment decision. Those are those are kind of some, some how, how to's that I've picked up from from a bunch of reading and then also a bunch of practice across lots and lots of founder interviews. Um, hopefully that's all helpful. And, and I'm obviously happy to um, share whatever answer questions or, you know, generally kind of be available, obviously, to, to all of you. I'm super excited to be spending time in this cohort. And this is just kind of a piece of how I've approached the craft of venture. And it's just one piece. I think sort of the product mindset is, is the broader thing. And the interview is, is sort of one one piece of that. So hopefully this has been helpful. Totally. Thank you, Finn. This is this is fantastic. We're going to open it up to uh, to, to Q and A. Uh, Ryan, would you uh, would you like to ask your, your question first? Sure. Thanks. Uh, hey, thanks, Finn. I wanted to ask you, how do you get from being excited about ten thousand investments to uh, only investing in sixty? And what does it look like from taking all the information inputs that you have and getting down to an actual yes or no? Um, you know, is it is it more like uh, some kind of discussion? or consensus kind of like benchmark uh, my, my understanding from the process, or is it more like there's a kind of rigorous checklist like Andreessen Horowitz has? My process, like I can talk about the first round process, which was not, not consensus, but majority. But for me personally, the, the process is really about looking for those spikes in the founder, in the opportunity, um, sort of those things that, that seem almost unbelievable, like the anomalous things. Um, and then, you know, being able to, 
you know, to believe that those anomalous things uh, and the fundamental understanding that the founder holds are also the things that will provide high leverage to building a massive business. And so, you know, the the Glide example I gave before, you know, you take that that thing, which was very, it was like almost like that feeling of surprise is what you're looking for. Like you're in a meeting and you want that feeling of surprise. Like if someone, like if right now for all of you, there was a super loud noise behind you and you jump, that feeling you have in, in your body when that happens, like that's almost what you're looking for in the meeting with founders, I think. And that you're, you're sort of shocked by something um, and then you dig into it and it turns out to be true. And then you believe that that truth is, is the foundation of a very, very large opportunity. And, and so I think that's, those are the kind of steps to go from, you know, 10,000 to, to 60 or, or whatever. Uh, Finn, I'll just to piggyback off that a bit, I wanted to ask you, um, so of the 63 that you've done, a number of them have, have turned out great. Some of them, you know, perhaps haven't turned out great yet or, or didn't work out and you still thought it was a good bet. And then there's probably even a smaller number, if, if any, that you're like, well, if I can go back in time, I, I, I wouldn't have done it for X, Y, Z reason. Like even at the time, you know, yeah. yeah. And so without, obviously you're not going to name any specific companies or even give it away, but just what are the characteristics of like, what would you have told yourself in that moment? Like to the extent that you ever made a mistake in, in your eyes, mm -hmm. what does that look like? Yeah. So I think, I think the, uh, there's definitely those, I mean, there's all of those things um, in, if I look at those 63 and I think, in particular, like the, you know, when you look at like my first three years at, at first round, you know, it was sort of like, it was an education very clearly. And, and, you know, like the, the multiple on the money that I sort of deployed through first round in my first three years is like 1.23 or something. So it was like, didn't, it wasn't a zero, but it wasn't like what you look for. The next three years, sort of you look at the next three, that's where you started to see like the notions and the blue aprons and the clovers and um, and that has a great multiple. And then I think as you come into kind of like the last like three or four years, things are too early, but I think there's some really good potentials kind of like large companies in there. Um, and, and I think the, the thing I would focus on the most is I, I didn't early on, I didn't appreciate enough the physics of a business and just kind of like the importance of business model, how you're actually going to make money, the friction inherent in that model. And would sort of, um, I think I was pretty good at identifying like the the island of innovation that we were all going to live on with the palm trees and the pina coladas and, you know, sort of the beautiful life. But I wasn't as good at sort of doing the work to figure out the bridge or the tunnel or however we were all going to get there and, and what actually needed to be built. And so, um, you know, there's there is a company where there's sort of like uh, a, a fundamental bet on sort of some piece of unit economics that looking back was basically impossible, right? And, and like, that was just, just a wrong bet. You know, and then I think there are things that were, where you make a bet that doesn't work out, right? So like um, electric objects is one where like, you know, didn't work out. But I think when I look at the reasons I made that investment, what I was excited about, the potential there, like I would make that bet again, knowing what I knew at the time, right? And, and I feel like that was a good investment with a bad outcome. Um, the ones that really kill me are actually, um, so like the first example is one where I made a bet that was just stupid. Like I, it was just a bad decision and I was betting on something that I should have known wouldn't come out. I should have known it would end up the way it ended up. Electric objects is one where like I made the bet, it played out in a way that wasn't successful, but knowing what I know, I would going, I would make that bet again. The ones that are the worst are the ones where you think you're betting on one thing, but in fact, the thing that either makes company successful or failure is something totally different that you completely missed. Right. And I think those are the ones that, that really 
you know, are painful, right? Because you're, you're sort of saying like you're as an investor, you have, you're kind of betting on this thing. You want it to play out this way. You're, you're focusing your attention on that. And, you know, it turns out that actually the key driver of this business is something that you weren't even aware of. And sometimes like the tide rises and hides those rocks and, and it works out, but a lot of times it doesn't. And, and I think that's, those are the most painful ones. Hey, Finn, thanks uh, so much for sharing all this. I think this has been great. Um, how, you know, given all of this and your track record and kind of the stages you shared about your time at first round, how are you thinking about what you want to do next? <laughs> um, yeah, I was joking with Jack earlier that he, he said, how solo capitalist life. And I said, the, the solo part's good. The capital is still in waiting. Um, the, uh, I, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure out, like I, I, um, there's, it's funny, I was talking to someone about investing just as a craft. I know I want to be an investor. Like for me, there's no greater professional joy than seeing something in someone that, that they don't maybe even see yet and helping them believe it. And then doing everything you can and having the resources either through platform or personally to, um, to, to, to allow them to amplify their success, right? And, and to improve their odds of, of generating tremendous impact. And, and so for me, that's, that's why to be an investor. The thing that I say this, like when you work with other people, other people will absolutely deform your investment lens. Like they will change the way you look at the world. And the question is whether they act as corrective lenses or they make it blurrier, right? And, and so I think there's this process of sort of trying to find people that when they deform your investment judgment, they deform it in a way that makes it better um, rather than makes it worse. And, and I think that's really hard to find. So, so for me, I'm, I'm pretty sure, I know I want to be an investor. I don't know if I want to do that alone or with others. I don't know if with others means joining an existing platform or starting something and, and pulling in a group. Um, but very much in the early stages of, of sort of those conversations and, you know, feeling like I have some ideas around a, a new platform that has a reason for being like my, my other challenge is like my mental model is the world doesn't need another VC firm. So like, it's hard to say, I'm just going to go like, you know, we all sell coffee and I'm just going to have the best coffee shop on the block. Like I don't, I don't want to operate that way. And, and so I think for me to start something, it would have to have it like a real reason for being, and I have some ideas about that. And then also, you know, there there are a couple groups that I think are are interesting. Obviously, lots of people I have respect for, but like the combination of respect for, believe in their model, and believe that working with them would both make me a better investor and they would deform my judgment in the right way, and that I could do that for them, is a super super high bar. Um, and I'm just not not sort of through that process yet. Is there something? As just a quick follow on, is there something either? through your time so far at OnDeck or not, just in kind of since OnDeck has started with this cohort, is there something that has changed for you in kind of more recent time? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's been a bunch of learning I've done recently. Like I think, um, you know, a couple of mental models I'm playing with right now. Um, one, uh, it used to be that if, if someone wanted to be an investor and they wanted to raise outside capital, that it was very clear the process that they were going to go through. Like they were going to raise as much as they could for fund one, probably raise a similar amount to... 150% of that for fund two. And then fund three was the one that was institutional if they were successful or they go back to an operating role. Like that was kind of the path, right? And so you kind of had this like 25, 25 to 50, 100 plus was like the success path. Um, in talking with a bunch of folks, you know, sort of through, through on deck as well as just in general who are thinking about being investors and investing other people's capital right now, I actually think a large percentage of people don't view that as the success path anymore. And that there's a ton of really, really good investors who kind of say, no, I'm good with like 10 or 20 million bucks. I, I would like to do that. I would like to 
have the flexibility to fit into rounds rather than have to lead. I'd like to have the flexibility to make one investment a month or five, depending on how I'm feeling, um, but not have the need to deploy sort of some amount of capital every quarter, et cetera. And, and that my desire is to drive multiples, not to sort of aggregate fees. Um, and sort of the shift back to success as successfully operating in this craftsman style. Another just thing I've been thinking about is, is like most people, I think, believe we're sort of in the, when it comes to the economy or technology, like we're in the ninth, 12th or 15th inning of the sort of this like expansion that we've seen, particularly in tech. Um, and recently I've been kind of wondering, like, I don't know if this is true or not, but like, what if naturally Amazon is actually a $30 trillion company, not a $2 trillion company. And Apple is a $25 trillion company. And like the exits are in fact much, much, much larger. And that that is what we should expect. Like how will that change kind of the capital stack in the private markets? And uh, what does that mean about where um, you should be investing, uh, you know, your time and energy um, in, in terms of kind of the practice of venture and, and, you know, can you drive, you know, big multiples at sort of some of the later stages. And I sort of wonder about that just as I think the, the idea that exits are not getting bigger, but prices are going up is kind of been proven untrue by like if Snowflake can go public and be bigger than Goldman Sachs, like I think we should argue the exits are actually getting bigger. And maybe the belief that, you know, 15 times EBITDA is the like critical mass, like that is the end state of any company that's public, like maybe any company other than tech enabled companies. And when you look at like, where Nike is right now based on sort of deciding and declaring that their competitive frontier is digital, not physical, you know, they're seeing their multiple expand. Um, and, and so maybe the natural state of, you know, EBITDA multiples for tech companies is 30, not 15 or, or 45, right? And if that's the case, all these companies are actually undervalued today, not overvalued. And like, I'm not saying I believe that yet, but it's, it's sort of this interesting, um, as I think about having a blank piece of paper and where I want to work, these types of things is stuff I've been been thinking about. Thank you. Vin, um, can you speculate more a bit on the, uh, just on where you see venture going? I mean, you sort of hinted that maybe you see sort of less um, sort of fat firms and, and more decentralization or, um, mm-hmm. you know, at first round, you guys were really innovating, sort of like thinking about the the, the platform and firm as a, and, you know, productizing venture capital. I'm sure you did a bunch of experiments with, with data and, and on yep. sourcing, on evaluating. Um, where do you see things going over the next like five to 10 years? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think we'll see a continued fracturing of the capital base. Like my, my general belief is like, just like over the last call it 10 years for simple, simple numbers, like you saw this explosion of entrepreneurship in large part due to availability of information and access. Right. So, you know, we haven't solved a lot of the diversity issues and so forth, but the idea that, you know, being an entrepreneur is not this crazy thing that no one knows how to do unless like, you grew up in the Valley or went to Stanford or worked at, you know, some big tech company. Um, and that it is a global movement uh, with lots of information about how to do it and lots of information about how to be really good at it, access to the tools that you need, the resources, mentorship, et cetera. My belief is the same thing's going to happen to investing and that you're going to see this explosion of, you know, folks allocating capital um, and, and that, that, that decentralization will be driven by, you know, access to information, but also just when you break down what investing actually is, you know, access is the primary thing. And so people with access um, and good judgment should be able to apply capital to that. Uh, and I think, I think the world will evolve to allow that to take place. Um, I think at the same time, the 
the reality of kind of the aggregator firms, um, you know, building up these massive pools of capital means that at, you know, at some stage, below some stage, they just can't pay attention to you. And so you're, if you want advice and guidance, you're going to need individuals that know what the hell they're talking about. And if they're doing it full time and they can be super helpful and they're dedicated, even if it's a small check, if it's meaningful to them, they will be impactful to the company. Uh, and I think entrepreneurs sort of leaning in that direction makes sense. So like a, a continued fracturing of the capital base, um, I think will continue. Yeah, it seems like we're seeing like some people even start like slinging Series A checks as if they were like yeah. angel. No, that's right. I mean, I think I think I think we'll see how that plays out. Like like right now, my guess is that a huge piece of the bias to take an individual, and this isn't this isn't a knock on the individuals that are writing these checks, but I would argue that a huge piece of the bias to take a $10 million check from an individual who you meet with for seven minutes and who can commit on the spot is the fact that you meet with them for seven minutes and they commit on the spot. Like it's impressive. Like, it's, you know, and as a founder, like, holy shit, this person believes in me. And I think it speaks to ultimately what all founders want, which is psychological safety and someone who believes in them as they go through this fucking crazy thing of building a company. Um, and so if you can express that by committing on the spot to a large check, I think it's very, very powerful versus like, I love this. Let's go talk to 10 people that you've never met before and do this whole, like, it's just, you know, it's not worth it. And particularly when increasingly that check from this very large firm doesn't come with a lot of, of, you know, specific attention from a given partner, because as the firms get bigger, even a $10 million check is less and less meaningful to them, right? As a percentage of their capital and and what they require to get back Uh, versus for an individual, I think it is obviously, it is meaningful, even if they have, you know, $200 million behind them a 10 or $15 million check is, is a big deal. Um, and they're going to care and they're going to do work, um, you know, to sort of make that valuable. So I think, how do you think about speed? Um, I remember Josh Kaufman had a tweet that was like a decade ago, it used to be 90 days between first meeting and investment. Mm-hmm. And now it's like nine days. Yeah. Um, and you just mentioned, you know, seven minutes <laughs> for, for some people. Yeah. How, how, how do you, how do you think about it? The way I think about speed is I think I think investors compete on three things: speed, price, and product. Right? And that, that's what you compete on. And so I think you have to figure out as an individual investor, like what do you want to compete on? Um, and it's pretty easy to compete on price, uh, which is part of why I'm thinking through this whole like what if what if the exits are actually bigger? And so I think you need to decide as an investor, like what are your vectors of competition? Um, and how do you define your product? How are you going to compete? What do you offer an entrepreneur? What is your decision process? How fast are you willing to, to do things? And how can you make sure you set appropriate expectations so that you can exceed them versus have people waiting for you to make a choice? Um, you know, and then on price, I think you have to decide, are you, are you mostly tucking into things um, or are you setting price? And then even if you're tucking in though, it's very, very different to sit with somebody and be like, I'm in for 25K. Like, I don't care. Like you let me know where it prices, but I'm in for 25K versus like my typical investments, 25K let me know as you have terms and I'll tell you if I'm in like, those are two very different things. And that's, that's how you play price as an angel. But I think, I think you have to decide like, how, how do you want to do it? And it'll impact your returns one way or the other. Uh, But you have to make those decisions. So I think when I think about speed, you know, I think a lot of that just has to do with, with the, the way you make decisions. Um, And certainly faster is better for a founder. Um, And if you're fighting for allocation, there's tremendous value in that. I mean, you know, for anyone who's raised money, like the investor that you sit with for 45 minutes who writes you an email that night about how excited they are to invest and they'd love to partner with you. And this is like, you know, where do they, where do they sign the safe and where do they wire? Like that carries a lot of weight. 
And, and even if that's not the process you go through, when it comes time to allocating the round and they're looking at that Google sheet and like people's requested allocations and what they're going to give them, I think that early commitment carries a ton of weight. My, my understanding was that at first round, angel track was, was, was your baby. You, you've seen a lot of, you know, a bunch of angels go, go through it and, you know, it's, uh, maybe it's been a couple of years now, so you've seen them grow. For sort of angels in this group, what, what have you sort of seen as sort of like the angel learning curve or what are some, you know, patterns that you've seen that people accelerate that curve or what, what advice might you have based on your experience? Yeah, so so uh, angel track really it was like, yeah, Ben and I kind of came up with that and Ben did most of the work, so he should get a lot of the credit, but yeah, we came up with that. And then now Alex is doing it, she's amazing. The, the number one thing I would say is angel investing can be very unstructured. And I think the more you can create structure for yourself, the better, right? Part of why I talk about interviewing and having structured interviews is because you you want to practice a craft and be able to sort of build on your experience and you know get better quickly um, and so that that learning curve will be steeper if you have sort of structured approaches and you can say like i've done this thing 10 times and the 10th time i did it i was five times better than the first time i did it okay that's good now i'm going to focus on something else in terms of financial structure i think that's probably the biggest one where you know i, I would guess that um you know, people talk about like portfolio and should you have more or fewer companies um, from a financial perspective? I actually don't think the odd, like if you say like I have, you know, whatever, $100,000 or a million dollars, whatever the number is to invest in companies over the next, you know, year. If you invest in 10 companies or 20 companies, I don't think you're actually skewing the odds that you find the big winner by that much, right? Like you're going from, you know, half a percent to like 0.75%. Like you're not going from, Two percent to twenty-five percent. If you go from ten companies to twenty companies, so I don't actually think that's the point. I think the reason to do it is because it's just more iteration. It's more times to try something. It's more wash, rinse, repeat. And and so I think I would encourage people to have a smaller check size and make more investments early, um, because anything you lose financially, you're going to make up for that with learning, and therefore get into the next really good thing. Um, and, and do a better job as an investor. And so I think the number one way to steepen your learning curve is to make more smaller investments. Um, it also lowers the bar on like, how do you win? How do you get in? Like if you have a reasonable relationship and you're, you're not going to be value detracting, like getting $10,000 into a company should be doable. You know, founders will oftentimes say, oh, you need 50K, but they'll lower the, the minimum amount. It's totally fine. So I would say like more investments um, have the same dollar amount every single time. Like the people who get in real trouble are like, but I was so excited I wrote a 100K check. And you're like, you have no idea what you're talking about. Um, and, and like at first round, we, we had a thing where, you know, you'd, you'd have convictions or like one to five, basically. There was zero correlation between average, like if everything was a five versus if it was like a 3.1 to get through, like zero correlation between that score and success of the company. And so I think my view is you really don't know. And over time you develop taste and you start to get a sense. Um, but I think that the um, early on, a fixed dollar size, a target number of investments, and then doing the work to, to really be thoughtful about how you're improving your actual craft, your process, rather than worrying about outcomes um, is, is the best thing to, to focus on. Finn, if I can jump in here real quick. Um, thanks sure. for doing this, by the way, and, and thanks for yeah, doing the pitch event as well. Um, so something I noticed just while you were running the pitch event last week and, and now here as well, you rarely if not ever, use the word deals to describe um, your investments. I, I hear you use the word opportunities a lot, and I, I definitely love that. 
How do you think, if at all, that has influenced your mindset and the way that you think about investing in founders? Yeah, I think, I think, um, I, I, as a product person, like, you know, I started in physical products and so sort of very obsessive about lots of little things. And, you know, when you're, when you're sitting in a factory in China at two in the morning, arguing about like the added cost of like rolling the leather and stitching it in a certain way, like, you know, you sort of get, um, obsessive about certain things. And so as I've thought about the, the product that I put in the market, I think, um, you know, deals are things that are transactional and, and ultimately I don't want to be successful by doing good deals. Like I just don't want to define my success that way. Um, I want to define success by forming unbelievable partnerships with amazing people. And my belief is that, you know, success for me, like if, if, if founders that I partner with, when they're done with the company, for whatever reason, either it's a smoking hole in the ground and they need another job, it's a tremendous success and they don't want to be a public company CEO or, or more probably like for personal professional reasons, somewhere in between those two outcomes, they decide it's right to step away. Like if, if in that moment, that founder would say, one, I couldn't have contributed more to the success of the business. I couldn't have been more personally impactful. I couldn't have grown more as a leader. And two, Finn was instrumental in unlocking that for me. Like that's a great partnership. And I think that if I can form a series of great partnerships that the financial outcomes will take care of themselves and, and that like, because I have so little control of the financial outcome, uh, measuring myself against it is, is probably not particularly in the near term, the right way to think about it. And so deal, I think a successful deal is all about the financial outcome. Um, And so for me, I tend to call it, you know, an opportunity or a partnership because that's how I think of the relationship. And that's the vector by which I measure the success. Um, And obviously, you know, over time, like I need to do some good deals. I need some clear bits and notions and, you know, those things like you need those. Um, But I think uh, the thing that I have control over and the thing that I can measure is the quality of the partnership. And so I tend to, to refer to it that way. But it's just a, it's a reflection of maybe some like OCD product mindset that I, that I have. Uh, but, but I do think that stuff matters. Like when you, when you talk to an entrepreneur, you, you know, like if an entrepreneur was to overhear you talking about their company and you're talking about the deal, this great deal you found versus this amazing opportunity to partner with her. And she's this, you know, like I think she's much more likely to want to work with you in the second case than the first. That's it. Finn, thanks again. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc. Thanks for listening. 